trying to get back to the basics of great products. Power comes from sharing information. I try to convince people to slow down. Free. Yeah. Open. This is the Soak Dice Podcast. Hi, listeners and viewers. Before we go to the episode itself, I have a quick word from our sponsor, Avance. The Avance story on the Finnish legal market is completely unique. Since launch in October 2011, the firm has grown from a startup to a leading law firm of around 50 legal professionals advising clients in their most challenging corporate transactions, disputes, and projects. Avance's technology and venture capital teams have broad experience in supporting the success of clients, looking both into and out of Finland, and ranging from emerging startups to leading global players in sectors as varied as health tech, clean tech, quantum computing, gaming, fintech, blockchain, and the paper industry. Working with a wide spectrum of technology matters, Avance's team provides agile and cutting-edge advice and assistance fitted to each client's needs. Learn more at www.avance.com. Thank you. Let's go to the episode. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Soaked by Slush podcast. Or if this is your first episode, welcome to the Soaked by Slush podcast. My name is William von der Palen, and with me in Copenhagen, as usual, is Isak Rautio. What's up, Isak? I'm good. Yeah, still here as usual, still here in Copenhagen as usual. And nice to be here at the Soaked by Slush podcast. Took a nice look at the camera there just for the viewers. How are you doing, William? I'm doing I'm doing great. It's it's uh, super nice to be recording again and and even more so with yet another super interesting uh guest. Uh yeah, today joining us is is uh, Jonathan Rochelle. Welcome. Hey, how are you guys doing? So I purposefully uh, left out the the title. Uh, I figured <laughs> you might maybe you could give us a short, you know, uh, introduction of who you are. You've done some pretty uh, interesting things along the years, and and you're also in a in an interesting situation at the moment where you're exploring some new stuff. So maybe we could start start off with that. Sure. Yeah. So uh, for the past year, I was CPO, Chief Product Officer at Zapier, so managing the product design and research teams, and. Uh, recently left uh, over the past few weeks and uh, exploring some new ideas. One, one, I think the most interesting thing going on right now is I'm exploring investing in a business with my 19-year-old, actually, as of last night, 20-year-old son, who is, um, yeah, he he is an interesting uh, uh, example. You know, I was in education for a long time when I was at Google, and he's an interesting example of a, a student who decided not to be a student in college and went right into business and got really into the auto industry and uh, is already looking to invest in a, in a, in a new business. So I'm joining him in that uh, was going to be a silent partner and now a little bit more active. So that's a really exciting uh, development. And then I've got some other exploratory things that are more close to my um, field of expertise and technology that um, are still brewing. So uh, not necessarily something that's solid. So I'm focusing for the next few months on trying to get him up and running. Uh, so that's been awesome. But uh, yeah, the last year at Zapier was incredible. What a great company and was fully remote before COVID. So that was an interesting experience. You know, as of last September, I went fully remote, uh, had about six months of practice until COVID hit. And then suddenly people were calling me because I was supposedly the expert in remote work, <laughs> uh, you know, having been part of the Zapier team. So, uh, so it's been a really interesting year. And um, yeah, we can talk about what I did before that if you want. Yeah, you, I think uh, that's interesting. Can I can I ask something? Because I noticed something. You you uh, you uh, said student in quotation marks, and I'm guessing that's not a slide at your kid. That's more a new definition that you have for for what student is. That's you- a, that's a really good catch, Isaac. That's um, exactly <laughs> what I meant. Is is okay. He he was um, actually a good student in high school. He just didn't like it. He he felt like he wasn't learning, and he didn't feel it that strongly until he went out and got a job in a field that he loved. So he was one of these teenagers that rejected the idea of getting just a job, you know, that was like a, you know, a clerk or something where you'd make money so you could go out and party and do what you want with yeah. your own money. He really wanted to get moving in what his interest was, which was cars, automobiles and, and uh, mobility. Um, and when he got that job, literally a week later, he said, I am not learning anything in school. I'm learning more every day at work than I've learned over the past 11 and a half years at school. I don't want to go to, 
high school anymore. And of course, I don't think any parent would feel good about their their child not going to high school. So he finished a year early. He graduated over the summer, got enough credits to graduate, but decided after taking one college course that that wasn't for him either and uh, decided to just keep pursuing his business um, uh, you know, um, pursuits. And uh, he's now got two and a half years experience in the auto industry, has ideas for what he wants to do there. And uh, now we're doing that investment. So yes, you're right. Student was more like, well, we can't necessarily put every child, every, every teenager, every young person in a box and say, this is what it means to live your life. Uh, here's the path you will take and the, and the right path. And that's something that is hard for parents, I think. Um, but it's really powerful. Great. Yeah. I think this is really interesting. Let's put a pin on this topic. We might get back to this, but yeah, you were cool. saying, William. Yeah, no, but but I agree, and I think it's it's great to see that it's getting more and more you know acceptable, so to say, for for people to take different routes, and and that will also certainly boost some some very interesting entrepreneurs, and and maybe also people who are able to think, you know, in in a bit of a different way. Uh, so that's exactly. exciting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you you mentioned that we could also you know discuss a bit uh, about what you've done done before, and you're you're obviously well known for your time at Google. And, uh, and and for the work you did there, you you've been quite heavily involved with products that I would I would say most anyone has used, uh, including you know the Google Drive ecosystem and and um, you know the apps related to that. So I mean, uh, maybe just just a general question like, what does it feel like to you know <laughs> have left a, quite a big mark on the internet, uh, so to say? I mean, you know, just that direct question. It feels great. I mean, I love. Literally just last night, my son was here with some friends and they were talking about how they use Google Docs every day, you know, and it's just a it's a great feeling. It really is. And to think that a billion people every month use some of the products that I helped create is just exciting. And, you know, but I'm also aware that um, that was then, you know, there's there's new products coming out. And sometimes I uh, I really want to be part of. Uh, what's going on in some of the new products. So even in, in, you know, on the side, I love to invest in products that I believe will displace Google Docs at some point, or at least add to it. You know, I think it takes so long. What What's happened, I think, with Docs and Drive and Sheets is those have a really strong root system. People are using them now as what they use every day. I'm habitual. I, I, I wouldn't use something else only. I would, you know, keep using Google Docs, even if I take on something new. Um, which is the same thing that happened with Office. You know, Office is is deep rooted, but there's plenty of room for innovation. You know, so a product like Coda, I love Coda, and and it's just like it's got so many of the features that I wish I did in, in Google Docs, um, and you can only do so much. So there's always going to be new products, but um, but it does feel great. It was it was an amazing experience. I was there for 14 years at Google, and the first eight were literally growing Google Docs, sheet slides, starting with sheets. Uh, drive and, and forums and a bunch of others. Um, you know, the first eight years was was all that growing it from a team of four, uh, four people to uh, to many several hundred, and so it was uh, that was amazing. And then um, and then I moved on to education and worked on uh, and introduced some new products there, Google Classroom and others, which again with the pandemic proved to be incredibly valuable to people, which which feels great. Yeah, how do you approach building something new? I mean, with the Google Drive ecosystem, that was basically okay. With the, in the case of Docs, taking something that existed and, and then making it online, but you know, doing educational product or looking at what Sapir has done. How do you, you know, go about creating something that's that's new or a modification on something existing already? I mean, I think the key is to find a problem that needs solving. And one of the misnomers about when we started Google Sheets, it was it was literally Sheets. That was the first thing we'd worked on. People thought we were just trying to compete with Excel. And, and it sounded crazy. And I would have even said, why? Excel's not broken. There is no problem to solve there. Like, I think that's how people looked at it was, what, what problem are you solving if you're just creating, you know, just putting it online? And sure, you, you can kill the save button and make it a share button. And that's great. But what we found was actually the problem we were solving was sharing, was collaboration and teamwork. And that was really broken in office in the old days. I think it was something that, you know, everybody experienced, but they never expressed. And so we found this insight uh, while working on the product at Google that real-time collaboration 
was was going to fix that. It was going to be one of the key um, uh, solutions to the problem of sharing, and and that turned out to be true. That it took a long time for people to really uh, discover it. Um, there's epic stories of people not even realizing when they were using Docs that they could be in the document at the same time as somebody else until years later, when somebody finally joins and they see them there, and it's like, oh my God, I can see somebody else in my document. There's really some epic stories around that at Google. Um, but it's, um, I think the key is to find a problem and solve it in the simplest way possible and not, not let your uh, desire for expansion come too soon. And so we started with Sheets and real-time collaboration. We barely had any of the features that Excel had, but we had enough and we had some of the key things that would let people share spreadsheets. And then we moved on to docs and did something very simple and moved on to slides and did something very simple. Um, and the other thing we did, I think that's a key that I talk about a lot. I think I talked about it at my presentation at Slush last year, which was the idea of building a bridge for people and giving them something familiar enough so it's they're not making a 100% shift. They're not turning 90 degrees to the left or 180 degrees to, to use something new. Make it easy for them by building a bridge. So for us, the bridge was the split between spreadsheets, documents, and presentations. That is not necessarily a natural split. And But back then, it was hard to challenge that because people then didn't know when to use this thing. So we made it very... Uh, understandable and familiar in that way, but then introduced real-time collaboration. And now a product like Coda could actually challenge that and say, no, no, it's just a document that has anything in it. It's got active add-ons and what they call packs and things that are functional inside the document. And it's got multiple pages, multiple chapters. It's, you know, things that we weren't comfortable challenging back then, but now you can. When you go about building something that's this big and, and has such a big user base and then put on top of that the the resistance of the legacy of there's nothing wrong with this, how do you make sure that you don't mess up along the way and that the whole project doesn't collapse because of a, some sort of, yeah, rock on the way? Yeah, you know, it's hard. And I th that's where I think that building a bridge is key, but you also have to really be honest about the feedback of, you know, in the product with, with your customers. That, that's when listening to the customers takes over to say, are people loving this product? If you took it away, will they be upset? And that is the, you know, ultimate um, metric of, of whether the product can, can exist on its own and, and whether you're on a right path. There's, there's no the right path. There's not one right path. And that's what's so hard about product management generally is there's so many ways to go about it. Um, and there's so many examples of that at Zapier too. There's so many directions you could take that product and the founders and then I and others that, that lead that team have been able to forge a path that really worked by listening to customers and to really let the customers guide um, the success, not, uh, not just a desire to make more money or desire, you know, to, to just win, you know, crazy amounts of customers in one shot. You know, it's really just a, a, a somewhat moderately paced march uh, towards something that's successful. So I think I think the key is to start listening to customers as early as possible and be super honest about what you're hearing. You know, don't don't let your own either ego or uh, pursuit, you know, what you believe is the right thing as an individual, because that's how great products start. Usually as an individual believes, oh, my God, I really think I have a great idea here. But soon you have to turn that over to your customers and say, do they think it's a great idea? Are they loving this product? Will they be upset if I turn it off? How do you have some some good ways you, you can do that? You know, obviously you can, you know see who signs up and send them emails and ask, but do you, have you been able to, you know, scale that process, make it more deliberate and, and more automatic in a sense? Or is it in the beginning just, you know, actually calling people and, and asking them and, and really trying to get that feedback, even though it might hurt a little bit? Yeah, I think it is um, in product. Like I do believe the key is metrics and instrumentation and understanding whether people are using features, not so you have to really balance the research side. And I call it research loosely in this case, because it's not really research as much as discovery, you know, it's findings. There's research comes in two flavors, generally a lot of flavors, but one is, you know, evaluative is, is this thing something that people want? Is it something that people use? Do they like A or do they like B? 
Um, and that's great, but that's not really the research that I think is valuable for product managers. I think the research that's valuable for product development is generative to say, you know, let's, let's get insights from customers and, and that's focusing on problems. You know, what do they need? The jobs to be done, I think is a key thing that, that, uh, you know, we focused on, um, in uh, at Zapier in our generative research and to really understand what are people trying to achieve. But it's a, um, you know, it's a balance. And I think the way we've done it for sure is through a very natural association to our customer support team at Zapier for sure. Uh, at Google as well, but a little less so, um, I would say we weren't even as good at, at it at Google as, as Zapier is, which is to have a great customer support experience that also generates input for product development. And that's really key because you get two benefits out of that. One is people feel really good when they have a problem with your product, they feel really good about how they were supported um, and they feel loved. And then second, you learn a lot from customers. And, and of course, the, the cheapest way to, um, to build a product base, you know, a customer base is to keep your customers, keep the people that have already signed up. And then every person that joins is an ad. It's very hard to, to avoid churn and people leaving, but with a good customer support team, you get, you know, a better experience and therefore people stay. And secondly, you get great product uh, feedback for development. Are there any, you know, I think, because I think it's very interesting to, to you know, try to integrate it and make it make it quite automatic as well on the metric side so is there something you know is it something you have to build yourself or are there like what kind of if you get into the really nitty-gritty so you know are there some some you know uh ready-made tools that you can integrate i i i'm not a technical founder myself but you know stuff that you can integrate in in most any any apps or or is it something you have to build to actually match your own product and and the stuff you want to get out yourself i mean there's two parts of it one i would say is absolutely proprietary in your product because it depends on again what platform your product's on it's part of an engineering effort in other words if you're going to build a product you should set aside a technical product uh, you should set aside uh, a certain amount of engineering to make sure instrumentation is built in and over time that won't reduce you'll you'll constantly every time you build a feature you need to have some platform for instrumenting it and for measuring how things are doing and that means being able to turn things on and off as well to say this feature we're going to turn on for a certain percentage of users uh, that's got to be built into your platform and that's usually proprietary and again unless you're using a platform that's non-proprietary you know there are definitely uh, tools like that but i'm not I, i haven't used them really so but second is the data layer. Make sure you have a place to put that data you're collecting that is easy for non-technical people or easy enough for non-technical people to use the data. So researchers and product managers and even customer support people um, and anyone that's in a, you know, a functional job at the company should understand how to know what's happening in the product and they can discover things that that's in, that are incredibly insightful to say like well did you know that every single person that clicks on this feature after that they basically uh leave the product we don't see them again <laughs> you know maybe that feature is broken and maybe something underneath is happening it's not playing nice with another product they have or something like that and there's there's ways to make that achievable through through a data layer you know so a a looker or a tableau or something that makes it somewhat uh, usable. Those those products sometimes are, are hard to use too, but they're they're more like spreadsheet style hard, not not coding. Right. Yeah. Because you know the philosophy we've had in our companies is at least that you know most customers will not take the time to complain. They will That's just get right. pissed off and leave. And if you get one bad feedback from something, you can count on it not being the the only bad feedback about something. It just shows for the first time. So uh, having yeah. something that's more optimized and doesn't lie if you don't want it to lie <laughs> is probably right. quite a good idea also. Yeah, that's right. And, and even like the business you guys are in, I mean, there's a ton of analytics that you need, right? You, you probably use some kind of analysis tools to say, hey, are we getting more viewers or less? Or, you know, which, which guests or what style or, you know, what changes can we associate? to the changes in our in our data in our in our viewership or things like that and uh and that becomes key to business almost every business now needs that desperately 
Now, as a very, 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 very non-technical person speaking here, uh, <laughs> what are some... Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's just to emphasize the truth behind what I'm saying. Uh, I, uh, I, how, do you, how would you, as me, or what, what tips would you give to me uh, if I want to get into uh, being an entrepreneur in a technical field? Who should I talk to? What should I, what book should I go read? I mean, even, any sort of, any sort of uh, mm. advice in how I should change my, change my daily routines or whatever. How should I approach this? I mean, I think what's happening now, and Zapier was really in the middle of this, which is this space of, of uh, no code. You know, there's i uh, I'm definitely using this too much. I have to stop doing this. <laughs> I'm not going to pick up on it anymore. No worries. I'm not going <laughs> to. The, uh, the area of no code has become a thing. It's become really uh, powerful. And it's something that it's funny. My original product that became Google Sheets, um, the one that our startup did before we got bought by Google was was a no-code product. It, it turned a spreadsheet into a web app. So you as a non-technical person, if you could build it in a spreadsheet, you could launch it as a web app. And it was super powerful, but very niche. And it was, um, and it was super early. This is like 2003. And so I think a non-technical person should try to find tools that help them build technical things or as close as possible to technical things. And I'll include things like Photoshop in there, you know, and things that at least you can express your idea really clearly in a, you know, in a digital way. That's, I guess that's the key is to be able to show someone. And it, it, it's something that I, I find it's uh, really a prevalent issue, which is there are so many great founders to be founders, people that could be founders that are non-technical, that don't know how to deliver something that is on a technical platform and they need, you know, technical co-founders basically. Um, but before they do that, I think they can find tools that help them implement things that seem technical, uh, that didn't require a lot of technical skill. So there's, um, you know, there are tools like it. So if you can do it in a spreadsheet, cause that's somewhat technical, but not that technical, um, you can use something like Glide to turn it into an app. You know, Glide is a really cool, uh, you know, way to turn a spreadsheet into an app. Or you can use, uh, there's a product called Bubble, which, you know, lets you build something as an online app. And it's a little technical, but it's it's leaning on the no-code um, area. And then, um, you know, there's there's plenty of things that kind of guide you to the point where, you're expressing your idea enough to know if it's a great idea. So people can look at it and say, Oh my God, I want that. And then you can say, Ooh, it's not quite ready, you know, but at least I know people really, really want it. And second to attract a technical co-founder. Um, and then, you know, then my advice is be ready to give up half your stock. Just make sure you do that, you know, get, bring somebody on that has a real, a real stake uh, in, in the success. Definitely. And don't you also think, quite honestly, uh, at least this is what I sometimes think, that I'm a bit full of crap when I say I'm a non-technical person. What does that even mean, really? Like, there's no there's no sort of predetermined category yeah. of, of uh, there's there's you can I mean, you might not become uh, an MIT PhD in computer science, but that's not a prerequisite. You can always pick up a new skill if you put your mind into it in some way. That's right. Yeah, and it's yeah, kind that's of a, definitely of, right appendix to Isaac's question uh, I think you know I was about to get to that that you know basically most people could probably learn to do it but what is the extent to which people should learn to code and not maybe now all people but you know founders uh, or people who want to be involved with technical uh, product driven companies should the should basically every founder know at least some code because what what you often hear is that you know the clash between business people and technical people because the business people don't understand anything and then you know this eternal battle and it would all be solved by the business people just learning how to code a little bit and you know the same is true probably in reverse but what, what do you think uh, about about this argument in in general so i have a i think a different view depending on I'll call it stage of career or or motivation and desire. There's incredible value to learning, period, like full stop. Learning technical skills is, uh, is one of those things that's incredibly valuable. And mostly because there's so much opportunity in using technology to solve problems. Like that's just... 
So if you love solving problems and you're willing or curious to learn technology and you want to learn new skills and you're at a point in your career where, hey, who knows? I just don't know. Maybe I'll love it. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll get into it. Um, then absolutely it's worthwhile. And then second is to understand, learn it enough just so you understand it so you can talk to a technical person with some meaningful, you know, um, material. You know, you, you could you could understand what they're saying and they can understand what you're trying to express. So somebody recently just asked me, you know, and I, and I do advisory sessions a lot. And somebody said, hey, I don't know enough technology. I need technical help. I don't even know. And she said, relational databases. And I think I need a relational database. And I'm thinking, okay, well, she's already exposed the fact, like you were saying, uh, that she's full of it. She's a little technical. She knows what a relational database is and she knows that she needs one. Then she's got just enough. And that's super valuable that she's got that because then she can uh, talk about um, what she needs and talk to someone who is technical and they can say, oh yeah, I can do that for you. And it is relational database. Uh, tech that you need. But I don't think every, like just to go right at the answer, no, every founder should not learn to code. I, I think what they should do is is find the complementary skills they need to, to create that company, create that product, take, take advantage of this opportunity they see. Um, but they don't personally need to do it. That's like immediately, I feel the wrong assumption, which is people do things themselves. That's just not right. And if you want to try to do something yourself, go right ahead. And it's awesome. I do something myself. I have a, like, you know, little side hustles that I love doing myself because it's more of a hobby, you know, but it's not, that's not the way to build a business. The way to build a business is to build a team. And, and that starts with finding a, a, either a technical co-founder or technical people that are as passionate as you are. Um, but, uh, but technical skills are hugely valuable. Yeah. And probably even more so in the, in the future. Uh, I want to get yeah. into Sapir a little bit, uh, even though you, you, but you still own us an advisor, so we can we can uh, tackle that a little bit because it's been uh, a very, uh, yeah, it's been a very interesting uh, story to follow. First of all, and it's also a product that say very very non technical, but not four times very non technical person I've been using a little bit, and it's helped helped out with some some interesting. Uh, interesting uh you know for me it's been more about optimizing efficiency and, and automating you know something some things with emails or sales processes or whatever but uh looking at all the apps you've integrated into your api seems it seems that the the options are pretty much limitless but maybe we could start just by quickly you know telling the listeners what sapir does and and maybe a bit about your trajectory so far yeah, so Zapier is basically a product that helps you build automated workflows across apps. So if you use apps, you could use Zapier. It's kind of as simple as that because nobody that I know uses one app. They almost always use more than one. And so if you need to share information between these apps, then Zapier helps. It, it gives you an opportunity to do it in an automated way and to do it uh, really simply and non-technically, something where you, you could build it uh, without coding. And so that's why it fits into this no-code zone. You know, it's where it's where it gets uh, used so much is by non-technical people that are saying, oh, I use these three apps. I use Salesforce and I use Slack and I use, uh, you know, zero accounting system and I need them to tie together. Um, and, oh my gosh, I just added a new way for customers to pay for something through let's say stripe or square and now i need to integrate that and they find they can do that with zapier uh, without technical help and at an incredibly reasonably reasonable price so so it it um, it lets people run their business and lets them scale their business uh, with automation uh, so that as they grow they don't have to keep hiring people to do physical things or technical people to code things they can actually do it themselves so now the integration that you mentioned between so many products like i think at this point uh 2500 or more you know closing in on 3000 probably uh products that are integrated through zapier um came in in two ways there's basically a team that does that at Google, that does these integrations when necessary, I mean, at Google, at Zapier, that does this, um, these integrations uh, themselves, especially when the demand is very high and the 
other app company is not doing it if they're not if they're not creating that integration. Um, and then B, and the, this is the most important part, is this do-it-yourself model for people that do have apps. So if I created a new app today and I said, okay, I'm going to create a new uh, productivity app that's going to be specialized spreadsheets. It's not going to be just general. It's going to be very specialized and it's going to be spreadsheets specifically for podcasters. You know, it's going to have everything they need and it's going to be a whole system when they have a guest, it's going to do this automated reminders and it's going to set them up and send them the stuff they need. Yes, please. So, yeah, you guys need it. Exactly. I'm sure everybody would need that. And, and, there, and that's the thing. There's so many niche areas like that. If I created that, how am I going to get discovered? So I've got to either put ads out there or try to get in, in search results and all these ways. I can also integrate with Zapier so that the person that's on, you know, using one of the other products. So if you, if you guys are using Zoom, you look for, oh, how can I get Zoom scheduling to work? And immediately you'd find that Zapier's got an integrated product called uh, the Jonathan Rochelle podcast product. And it, it, um, and, and that's also a discovery mechanism. So me as a developer, it, it's in my best interest to integrate with Zapier and I can do it myself. And that's the key behind one of the teams that we have there, uh, which is the developer platform team to allow anyone who's got an app to integrate it themselves so that it becomes part of the Zapier ecosystem. And as you know, ecosystems grow when they grow. So as it becomes more popular on one side, which is people automating, um, it becomes more popular on the app side as well. And the, and the two things feed off each other. And that's been the amazing growth trajectory for Zapier, which is both sides of the ecosystem are feeding each other. People expect your app to be connected to Zapier. And so uh, we had to create a very powerful platform for people to do it themselves. Do, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, just a quick, uh, because I, that's obviously when you say it and we put it out loud, that's how it how it's gone. But it's not something I think about, you know, straight away when thinking about Sabre. I'm just thinking what, what kind of a coding coder army do you need to do all those integrations and how do you approach mm -hmm. all this competition or, or all these... Um, all these companies, but uh, do you have some data or some some cool stories about actually quite small products or uh, or apps that uh, that have have grown mainly or at least in in big parts uh, because of the integration with you? Do you have like some success stories, or is it one part of you know a bigger effort as it usually is? You know, there's. I think there are a lot of those. Um, I can't think of one off the top of my head that's been like absolute growth but there there are i'll tell you things like calendly um yeah. have done incredible things with zapier because calendly is a very specific thing and it's clearly not the only thing somebody would use you don't use calendly alone ever there's not it's never the only thing you use and by their own definition they would say that you know it's a so there are definitely products like that there's there's a tremendous number um i i think you know again i i talk about coda a lot but i think coda is one of those that that also um has uh has put an investment in to make that integration work you know again not small but slack just recently you know they they just launched something really interesting uh, to make the Zapier workflow more inherent in the product. And so there's a lot of those, but there's, there are a tremendous number of very small uh, products that have, that have done really well. I think, you know, Webflow is one of those. If you build your product on Webflow as a, as a, um, as a platform for your existence on the web, you know, your website, uh, you've got Zapier integration uh, automatic, and that's definitely grown, grown through that. There's uh, so there's a tremendous number of them. Um, yeah, I was trying to look up some, uh, you know, look you up before the podcast so, so I would have the data, but I was trying to look up funding rounds and valuations and, you know, all this mm. this stuff, but I couldn't find really like big rounds or anything. So have you have you had any fund, funding rounds with Sapir per se, or has it been quite bootstrapped founder funding and, and then growing product first? Yeah, it's definitely one of the unique, one of many unique things about Zapier. Um, that they didn't uh, grow on the heels of funding rounds. They didn't. They didn't take investor money. Uh, generally, they took a little bit, um, but very small because they were a YC company, the Y Combinator company. So they, uh, you know, have a very small round, and and so you're not missing uh, something in your search. You, there's just if you look at there's a 
I think it's called the Cloud 100 or something like that. There's recently this list that came out of all the top cloud, you know, SaaS companies. And Zapier's on there, you know, in the 20s or 30s or something like that. And you, and it, it basically shows company name and funding amount. And it's like 100 million, 50 million, 20 million. And they get to Zapier, it's 1 million. And <laughs> Zapier, meanwhile, is a tremendously successful uh, company um, without that. And it's, you know, 350 or more people and fully remote, uh, no sales team. There's so many things about it that make it unique. And it's because they really solved a problem. You know, the, the, the product solves a problem for so many people uh, at the perfect time. This is when everybody, you know, I call it app proliferation. Like we all use too many apps and it's overwhelming. Um, it's something that I aspired to try to fix with Google Drive, in fact. Um, when we were developing Drive, we saw it coming, um, but now it's so prevalent. You know, we all we all have too many things in too many places, um, and so Zapier helps solve that. Yeah, I think that's you know that's uh, just beyond cool because uh, you know even though funding rounds are very very you know interesting and and oftentimes needed, I think they're also very idolized uh, sometimes. And we talked to Jiri Engström uh, a few weeks back as well, and. He also mentioned that you know taking VC monies is not always you know a great idea. It might even be considered a failure of sorts. You know, a failure of the business model. Of course, it's not true for for all companies, but I think it's it's refreshing also to see companies that can grow product first uh, and and you know get by without huge funding runs. And it's of course it's also uh, great for the founders and the entrepreneurs. They keep keep more of the equity and and you know it, it, at the end of the day they. They walk away also with more, and they've created something that's truly theirs uh, all the way. So, yeah, I think uh, that's right, and I think funding puts unnatural growth pressure on a company at times. Sometimes it really has to do with speed to market, and you need the money if you're going to grow before, you, frankly, your competitors do. You know, you 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 open up a an opportunity. And that's why we were we were really lucky doing docs at Google is we didn't have that unnatural need to grow because we were experimental. We were not expected by the CEO to to make money in the first I'll call it 10 years. Like even though he wouldn't have said that in year 1, it turned out to be, you know, I would say uh, a 10 year uh window of opportunity that we could get funding, but we had to fight for it internally. You know, we didn't grow fast. We grew very slow. Um, but we found something that suddenly everybody was jumping into that arena and saying, oh, we can do that too. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. And we had staying power because we were funded by Google, but we didn't have a big team. And if we were funded by investor money, we might have unnaturally tried to grow in ways that might have killed us, you know, or maybe it would have grown, we would have grown even faster. It's hard to say. Yeah, no, what I think actually, I, I, uh, speaking of Google, I mean, if, if I'm interrupting a, a like a train of thought here, William, keep in, no, no. keep in mind what you're uh, what you're uh, gonna ask. I, um, I was using Google Docs today actually for the last time, and and I have a question based on on uh, kind of the user experience. You spoke about the the expectations uh, of the of the of the customers. Um, in relation to Zapier, I never use Zapier, uh, but I, I think Willing can attest to to the quality of it. And I, I just that when I use Google Docs, it just it just works. And and so how do you how do you approach quality when building a product? Is it doing the little things right, or do you have some uh, directing principles that you always have to keep in mind when when building uh, when building a product? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and I'll tell you that is a constant battle because. Quality uh, is is somewhat subjective, um, and there the bar changes depending on the value you're providing. In other words, the willingness for people to put up with things. Um, so, I think this is actually a really important thing. Is the other benefit we had being at Google was we were building for scale from day one. We weren't building in a way that would be something that we expected to have to rewrite it. But if I'm in a startup, I would gladly give, you know, take speed and give up some long-term scalability and say, let's just get this thing out there. And if we get, okay, and if my engineers say, okay, it, it can take basically call it a hundred QPS or, you know, a thousand customers, 
I'll say, great, let's do it. Put it out there. When we start hitting 800 customers, let's start rewriting it. You know, let's, let's start scaling, but we don't even know if it's a good idea yet. Whereas at Google, once we knew it was a good idea, we were committed and we were building for scale because we were Google and we knew even if it was terrible, we were going to get some crazy traffic potentially. Um, and the founders of Google, you know, and at the time, you know, we were pretty small, 5,000 people or something. So the founders, you know, were in my ear uh, constantly. And, and it was it was like, you don't build something that can't scale. You build it to scale. You build it as if it's going to succeed and you make it so that it's got to be good enough where people are attracted to it without advertising and all these, all these cultural things. Um, but it's expensive, really expensive and really hard. You need amazing engineers. I had one engineer from my team that came into Google that made real-time collaboration work. Um, and, and for some reason, if he, if he ever watches this, I'll just say his name, Michael Lamonic. So Micah made it work. He was the engineer that, that, uh, really architected our collaboration layer so that it would work. And it works to this day. And of course, other great engineers joined and made it even better. And, you know, the team grew and things, but it is the same architecture that made that real-time collaboration work. And I have to say, whenever I talk to another um, group that's doing something competitive with docs, I always find that what bothers me is what you're saying, Isaac, you loved about docs, which I feel the same way, which is it always works and it works really well. It's fast. It's reliable. My stuff never goes away. And those are the principles. So going back to your question, those are the principles that we did build to like number one, from the day we started, even before we launched externally, but when we launched internally at Google, we all kind of shook hands and, and you know, gathered together and said, we will never lose anybody's stuff, period. That's the most sacred thing. Because if somebody uses this thing and they're using sheets, and even if it's experimental and they're starting to get into it, and they enter 10 rows of data, and then they fail and they can't find their data, we're done. They're never going to come back. And, and that's a terrible thing to do to someone. Um, so we, we made that like an absolute sacred rule, never lose anybody's stuff. And that, that lasted. I still have things on drive from pre-launch, like when we, and then, you know, it probably is known that we bought Rightly to do the document side. I have documents on my drive from when Rightly was like an experimental mode outside of Google. And so we always said, hey, we're going to make sure we migrate people's things over to Drive and we're never going to lose it. And I have crazy old things there, like me and Micah actually having a conversation on a document just to test Rightly before we bought it, you know, that kind of thing. It's just crazy, but it's um, those things are really important, again, but you have to make some trade-offs early on. And if you have to, you just have to be really clear, hey, you might lose your stuff. If you want to experiment with this experiment, don't use it for something real until you're ready to say, hey, we're ready. We're ready for something real. What do you do if, you know, because especially in a big ecosystem like Google Drive and all the products involved, you've probably had a, quite a lot of experimental features and, and the things you've tested out. What do you do if they don't, you know, they just don't work? You know, it's if it's if it's a bad idea or it technically doesn't work, how do you go about that? You know, this is what's so hard. And it's funny, only in hindsight, I think, can I can I say this is is try to set up expectations on things that might not work uh, as if they are somewhat fungible or, you know, they, they might go away. And that's, I think that's the key is when you launch something, make sure it's clear to your customers, whether you're launching it for real or you're launching it for test. And it's always nice to hedge a little and say, we're just, we just want to see what the interest is. Uh, this might not last. And so we created channels for the things like that. We created, you know, again, early days, what was called beta, uh, except when, you know, everything was beta from Google for a while. I don't know if you remember this, but Gmail was in beta for like, I don't know, five years or something. And it was a, it was an epic decision to take it out of beta because we knew that that had an implication about the beta label generally. But anyway, I think creating channels. So we've actually um, created channels for people to to use uh, non-final things um, at Google. Um, at Zapier, we don't do we don't do it as much. We don't you know have a need necessarily to do it as much, but we do have the ability to launch things experimentally and just make it really clear that it's experimental. 
That said, we have launched things, certainly, I don't have this experience at Zapier, but at Google, where it was a it was a feature, it was final, and some people loved it, and we still had to pull it. You know, it just wasn't working. And you have to be willing to do that. You know, you really, you really do. And, and mostly that experience came super early on in Google Sheets, because we were a little more flippant about what we would launch. We launched a feature. Um, there's something in the U.S., which is a big basketball championship. And we noticed Google Sheets was used for this basketball championship. You know, I don't know if you know it, the NCAA, it's called March Madness. And it's, you know, it's a big, and again, I think it turns into more of a social thing because everybody's, you know, basically doing their own little uh, pools, the office pools and things. And people were using sheets. We would have this huge spike in activity and we finally attributed it to March Madness. We're finally like, oh my God, that's what everybody's doing. And we launched this feature that would create tournament brackets inside of Sheets. And it was literally my co-founder who, who uh, you know, helped implement that because he was just, he wanted to have that in there. And it was like a function in Google Sheets. And it was, we had, you know, that had to be killed ultimately. It was so niche and so specific. And it certainly wasn't global. So, um, yeah, there are definitely... Oh, no, that's not there anymore? No, it's not. <laughs> it oh, was okay. like... I know. I think it was actually called like in, in a spreadsheet, if you're familiar with the, the nomenclature, it's like equals Google tournament or something like that. It was crazy. Uh, but then we, but we've done other things like equal Google finance. I don't know if you know the Google finance function. That was, that was epic. And that was, you know, I'm really proud of that one because I still use it to this day and it lets you get stock prices and things, you know, uh, from global markets inside of a spreadsheet in real time. And it's, you know, semi, semi real time. Um, and that was more of a legal you know, thing that we had to create, um, you know, agreements to get that data. But um, yeah, there are, there are times I think that the key is to go into it, assuming that it might not last and letting your customers know it might not last. And then when you're ready, say, okay, this is a final feature. Yeah. Think and and the, the customer's perspective thing there, and it would be so refreshing if people were more, or companies were more honest about this is being, this is being tested instead of being like, hey, this is this awesome, super, super cool. Like, come on, man, let me just try it out and see how yeah. it actually works. Be honest. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, agreed. Would you say, you know, because once you get as big as Google, of course, you can experiment on, on certain things. But if you have an established ecosystem like Google Drive or something similar, which you know is used by a billion people every month. Would you say it makes it harder to experiment or easier? Because in one way, of course, that could kill innovation because you can't roll out it, roll it out to to everyone at the same time if it fails because that would be just embarrassing <laughs> if you ask people. Yeah. But then you could roll it out since you have a billion customers. Why not try it with a million? <laughs> So, it yeah. definitely makes it harder. Like there's there's definitely a bar that you set. And that's true of any product that's used by more people. I mean, I found that at Zapier too, is as we were growing and the user base was growing, there was way more risk um, to your current user base. And so, it, but you're right, uh, what it gives you is an opportunity to test more efficiently, right? You can immediately get somebody looking at uh, you know, or, you know, hundreds, if not thousands or tens of thousands to try something very quickly. So certainly for like A-B testing, you want to test just the, you know, placement of a button or, a, you know, a link versus a button or something simple. It's hugely uh, beneficial to have a big user base because you can hit just a very small portion of them and still get plenty of people. Um, but there's a reluctance to screw up what you've got. Um, and you know, cause you can have a huge impact. Like this is, this is something that I've certainly seen, uh, at any company that I've worked at is, is anything that's going to touch your revenue flow, um, is extremely sensitive. And this is that, that was true with Google as well. You know, when they changed search teeny little, uh, changes in whether people are clicking ads or not, or, you know, going down a certain route, um, of buying, let's say from the Play Store or something, teeny little changes can have a huge impact on revenue. And negative changes if there's a bug or if there's a change that you made that you didn't test well. Uh, so people are overly cautious because they don't want to have that impact, especially when it's a public company with shareholders, because then it's like you just affected the shareholder without them having any say in it. You know, they have no no way to monitor or measure that. Yeah. No, that's 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 interesting. It's kind of a shame because at the same time, of course, comp the big companies have, 
in 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 a way the most resources to to do stuff. Yeah. But, but uh, that's probably why startups, some startups succeed and and uh, you know find problems that the big companies. I don't okay. think it's it's probably not that that they're not aware of them, but it's it might just be more that they won't do anything about it. Yeah, and that's a, so the speed that you can get in a startup is definitely the advantage you need to take. Uh, and, and run with it. Like that's people would ask me when I was at Google, and then when I was at Zapier too. Hey, we want to do this thing, but are you guys going to do it? Because if you guys are going to do it, you know, it might <laughs> not give us an opportunity. I'm like, we're never going to get to that. Like honestly, like that's you can take this thing and run with it so much faster. It would take me like 14 meetings just to get that thing going. That was more at Google than Zapier. But just to even get approval for the idea, I don't have anybody that's passionate about it, anybody that's working, just do it. Just get get out there and go. Don't worry that much. And this, it's also feedback I give to startups sometimes too, is there's a often an over- uh, you know, emphasized fear of sharing an idea with a company that you think might steal the idea. And that's fair. Like, you know, that's why people use patents and things. But my feeling is share to understand what you need to understand, whether it's going to be a good idea or not. Uh, share to do integrations, you know, and just be fastest. Just just be, you know, do it the best and the fastest and you'll still uh, have the potential to win. Um, there's, you know, the, va- the value of the idea on paper is very low. Uh, but executing is very high. Yeah, and it's no accident that companies like Google spend a lot of money also buying companies. Uh, That's right. Even though Absolutely. they would have the resources to maybe create something like that technically yeah. in two years. But That's right. I mean, when we did Sheets, and actually I have to say, I think the reason our company was bought was our passion for for spreadsheets on the web. Like we we really connected with someone there who said, man, you guys are so into this. Do it at Google. Don't don't do it on your own. Like this is going to be so much better. And you know, luckily he was totally right. I, I you know, who knows what it would have been like if we did it on our own? But it certainly would have been competitive and hard to move as fast. Yeah, and one aspect also maybe to to wrap up is um, more and more there's talk now about uh, inclusivity in in uh, business life, um, in in companies in general, uh, but also in products and, and building inclusive products and, and what that might mean for instance is you know creating something uh, creating a product that that uh, for instance a person with a visual impairment or, or such could could use uh, also because of course most products and, and most most uh, things that are done are or, or are done according to certain norms uh, and and this is maybe a topic also that's been lifting its head lately, which is obviously a good thing. But how would you, as a you know product manager, approach uh, this side of of uh, things? So how how to go about building you know inclusive products and why why it matters in the first place? I think there are there's a couple of principles here too that are really key. One is it's hard to fake inclusivity. Uh, with a team that's not diverse and inclusive. So start with the team. Make the team as diverse as possible uh, from as many aspects as you can think of or that are practical. In other words, make sure that you're inclusive when you're building your team and your product will more naturally be inclusive. Because someone without the insights as to what inclusivity means can't fake that. They can't look at a, a checklist, really. They, you can, sort of, but it, it just won't happen naturally in the product unless your team is uh, diverse and inclusive. And I, and I think that's really important. And then the the same thing then starts happening with your customer base, which is we talked about you know the difference between working alone and working on a team and, and i think this just goes along with that which is you you get as many viewpoints as possible into your product and that makes the product m- more broad in terms of inclusivity and then your customer base is then diverse and they care about things that you might not have thought of and that you you didn't take into consideration and this definitely at, at Google has certainly happened. When I started working on the education products, even before I started working on the education products, educators and students were using our products. And we started getting strong feedback on uh, visually impaired users and, and how they needed to access this product. And in fact, in the U.S., there are laws uh, for for that um, 
you know, for uh, it's the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, and and colleges, universities are legally bound to provide opportunities for learning to visually impaired people uh, at the same, you know, in, in equivalent ways to people that are not visually impaired. And our products, we're not doing a good job of it. So the, the universities were saying to Google, basically, we can't use your products if you can't do this because we're legally bound. And we, we had this new awareness that became a priority across many of our products. This was before I joined the education side or, or started the education side. Um, of our products. And we really put it front and center and said, we're going to, you know, treat visually impaired users as critically important. The only way we could get that done, and it wasn't just visually impaired, it was, there were other uh, impairments as well, is to, is to have people that, that understood that on the team. And so we literally went around to Google and found people that could help us and, and be testers and be part of the team. And it, it made a huge world of difference. I mean, it was just incredible. Um, but to me, I think that's the key, is to make the team diverse uh, and inclusive. But I'll tell you, some of the products um, are really hard to make inclusive across every aspect of what inclusive means and to you know to make uh, possible for every user to use. One of the products um, I developed at Google or started at Google was Jamboard. Jamboard is a, a whiteboarding product. You know, you, 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 you walk up to it and you, you write on it and you, you draw and you add things to it. And when we started thinking about how to make that uh, available to visually impaired users, we were daunted. You know, it was like, how can we make that possible? And we realized it wouldn't be the physical board necessarily. It would be the app that we would make uh, more accessible so that when somebody did draw something on the board and it showed up on the app, it would tell you maybe what it was or give people an opportunity to label it. Um, And there there are ways to do it, but super hard. This is not, I mean, this is one of the toughest areas uh, you know, one of the one of the best Jamboard engineers came from actually the um, you know the uh, uh, the visually impaired um, development team and testing team, and so he you know he had a, a strong awareness of what we needed to do, but it was but it was super hard technically. Before we wrap up, wrap up, I'd like <laughs> to return to where we started off from. Uh, about the, you work with education now, so this is something of, a, I think, of a passion project for you anyway. You you think a lot about the future of education and the ways in which uh, people will and kids will educate themselves in the future. So how do you think, uh, I guess, from the from a, from perspective of like a tip or advice, uh, how, and not even to just people who are ready to drop off their degree, but what 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 I uh, think what can what can your son teach us? Yeah. His methods and his approach. So I have to say, like the the one thing that really struck me with him that I realized in hindsight was my uh, path as well was to discover a passion, and I think that's one of the things that is missing in our education system in the U.S. for sure, and I don't know how you would feel about where you are locally, but is that there's not enough focus on allowing students to explore and develop a passion, no less discover it. There's way too much emphasis on passing the test and passing the test in a way that is the same for every student, which I just don't think is natural or real. And therefore, students that actually like math or like history or like science or whatever they're studying in school, they'll do pretty well because they they are they're finding it interesting, they're passionate about it, and therefore they become good at it, and and then they feel good about being good at it, and that whole cycle goes. So for some students, for the middle of the curve, you know, if you look at all students, it works great, and it, and so for the needs of the many, maybe the education system is not broken at all. But for the needs of the few and the people on the edges, discovering passion and the key to that, this is this is the part that's just, it feels so impossible to really get this through the education system, is erasing the fear of failure. Because failure is what discovering is all about. You can't learn and discover unless you fail. And there's epic studies that really show that your brain learns best after failure. That is where you, and, and we can all relate to this, which is, hey, I can't really do this unless you give me a problem to solve. And if I'm solving a problem, I'll learn anything. That's why YouTube learning is so hot. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, my heater just broke. I will learn how to fix my heater because I'm cold. 
<laughs> and, and I'll go to YouTube and I'll find the video because there's so many people doing it. So I think that's what I, you know, what I realized in my son was that he found a passion and he went after it uh, at the risk of being, you know, uh, considered going off the normal path. And we as parents got comfortable with and felt good about giving him that opportunity and not, not pushing him down a path that was the middle of the curve, normal path. And I realized for me, the same thing happened in my junior year of high school, but in a way that was more acceptable, which was I took a computer science course in high school and it was, it was called computer math, which was, you know, cause it was so long ago, but I loved it on day three. I realized, Oh my God, I just found my future. I better start caring about my grades. And before that, I was not a good student at all. And after that, I was a great student because I cared I, and I found something I loved. And luckily I pursued it and I was able to, but it was normal. I had to go to college really to get those skills. And my son didn't have to go to college to, you know, learn the auto business and to understand that he had to work. That was the way he learned it. So I think that's the key. I think the key is, is discovery and a passion for learning through learning something that you're passionate about. And I think that's, you know, probably what I, what I'm excited about. I think in my work with education from this point forward is to give students, you know, just a little bit of guidance towards that. Just find something you love and learning will come naturally. You, you'll want to learn it. All right. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Right Thank you for on. taking your time, uh, Jonathan. This has been very enjoyable. And interesting. Yeah, yeah, great talking to you both. Thank you. It's been a it's been a great pleasure, and and thank you to to viewers and and listeners as well. If you're on YouTube, remember Definitely. to like the video and and subscribe to the channel if you like this this kind of content. And if you're on audio, you know, keep listening. Maybe subscribe as well. So thanks. See you again. Maybe. Thank you, Jonathan. Take care. <laughs> thanks. Good to you. thanks. Bye bye. Stay safe, guys. I hope you enjoyed your visit to that conversation as much as we did. Now. If you want to stay updated and keep in touch with us, please subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and then Facebook. You guessed it, Soap by Slush. Thank you people for listening. Bye-bye.